Greetings and welcome to Broken Boxes Podcast. In this episode, I get into deep reflection with artist and dear sister friend Amaryllis R. Flowers to mark the 10-year anniversary of Broken Boxes. Amaryllis interviews me around the arc of the project over the course of a decade, uncovering how it has become an archive of the lived experiences and world-building strategy of contemporary artists, while acknowledging the many variations of an artist's practiced values, including those of the activist, advocate, disruptor, or cultural activator. We speak about collective strength while considering how art and imagining may unbind us from collective social trauma. This long-form interview reflects the vulnerability, uncertainty, and strength required to maintain an art practice today. And I explain a bit about how the past four years of this project has become a dedicated imagination praxis focused on building a toolkit for surviving the chosen career as artist. At the end of our conversation, I announce Broken Boxes, a decade of art action and dialogue, the forthcoming exhibition and accompanying art book, which will premiere this fall at the Albuquerque Museum and features installation and video works from 23 artists that have been featured on the podcast with an emphasis on the past four years. I hope you enjoy this podcast and celebrate with me 10 years of Broken Boxes. Ginger the G, keep it real (laughs) for you and me. (laughs) Welcome, Ginger Dunnell, to your podcast, (laughs) Broken Boxes. My name is Amaryllis Flowers, and I have the supreme honor of getting to interview Ginger um, who is the creator, producer, <laughs> editor, everything, you know, you're, you're, this has been 10 years. That's why we're doing this interview today is just to really explore, celebrate and honor a decade of radical <laughs> interviews, long form conversations with artists. Also, you're my dear sister friend, artist comrade, artist outlaws, <laughs> co-conspirators. So I'm really excited to do what you do in this podcast, which is just like weave in and out of both like, you know, micro, macro, just personal experiences, interconnections, as well as the bigger picture. Um, so I think I just wanted to start with recognizing the breadth of this project in a decade you have written about produced edited and released over 150 interviews and conversations with artists though i don't know if a lot of people know this but this is really like this is a labor of love there is no um sponsorship behind the scenes it's really literally just you and your computer when we first did an interview what was it like nine years ago something like that it literally was on skype (laughs) before zoom was even a thing and it was just a recorded conversation before there were even 
you know, any podcast like this before podcasting was a thing. And so I got to interview Ginger um, for the nine-year anniversary of Broken Boxes podcast. And so I just wanted to let anyone who's listening know that if you want to hear more about Ginger's origin story as an artist, it's such an incredible conversation that you can go back and listen to that. And today, because it is the 10 year anniversary, I really want to explore this specific project um, and the space that you've been creating, conducting, holding over a decade. I'm going to say that so many times. (laughs) It's just mind blowing to me. That's such an incredible time capsule to sustain a project. So you start out each interview asking guests to introduce themselves as they want to be introduced. And so I was wondering if you would introduce this project as you see it, as you want, um, as you want it to be received and introduced. Thank you, Amaryllis. You are definitely my sister, my sister friend, my, um, sibling, my kin, my, um, soul sister, you and I have such a good working relationship and friendship and support system for each other. Like I can't imagine my life without you now that we've like developed a like a kind of a partnership together and Mm. so I just wanted to kind of reflect back to you that gratitude and yeah you're there's like a very small handful of people who I've witnessed witness me you know (laughs) sometimes you're just doing your thing and like you can get down on yourself or feel like um what am I doing this for? Especially if you're working from a, like a DIY aesthetic or underground aesthetic, you can start to feel like, what's the point? And you're one of those people who always bring me out of that little cloud, you know, out of that little like victim space by reminding me the importance of my work, even if it's not always front and center. So I just wanted to return the the gratitude. And then, yeah, so Broken Boxes, I have written and rewritten kind of the blurb for Broken Boxes over the past decade, you know, because the temperature of the world shifts, the way that we use language shifts, the way that we are in community shifts. You know, 10 years ago, we were barely understanding what social media really was, you know, like, isn't that wild to even think about that? Like wild. Yeah. The way that we communicate has changed so much over the past 10 years. So, so the way I talk about this work has changed and evolved. And I think like all culture evolution is a necessary part of it. So I kind of describe broken boxes as an artist run independent broadcasting platform, amplifying narratives of complexity, solidarity, contradiction, and inspiration in the arts. So that's kind of like my tagline that I've been using for the past year, because I feel like it's really important to pull outside of binary and um, polarity and really nestle into um, contradiction and um, Mm -hmm. complexity and plurality as like um, agents of change. Yeah, that's something that I think is so special about Broken Boxes as a project. And to have it be a a span of a decade, because 
as you're saying, our methods of culture and communication, like there's been some massive, massive shifts since 2014. So what I love about Broken Boxes is that it's a time capsule of that change and allowing people to change their minds, allowing people to evolve, allowing artists to find their footing and to make different decisions. And it's all kind of public in the sense that this is been recorded and shared with whoever comes across it and wants to receive it in community. And especially right now, and there's such a demand to just automatically know who you are and what you think and what you stand for and why you make work and just like on and on and on to be like solid and sure. And there's a little bit less space for change for fluidity for as you're saying like contradictions and something that you talk about is like holding space for contradictions and complexity as an act of resilience and that you never really set out to like make a air quotes archive because of you know, the way that that language is situated in history to mean like a very specific thing. And you talk about like a, a defiant and unruly archive. And I was wondering if you could just talk about a little bit how you found your way to really understanding the project that you took on and what was it that sustained it for so long? in terms of like, yeah, 150 <laughs> conversations. <laughs> There's uh, several answers to that question. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, creative impulse is mysterious and it doesn't allow you to stop no matter how much you're like, this is not good for my health or my mental health, <laughs> or this is not like sustainable. Like I'm actually like losing money doing this, but there is an impulse from coming from somewhere that is uh, mysterious and unexplainable that like keeps you going. And I feel like that's what happened for this project was it utilized a bunch of the skills that I had been honing through my creative practice as an artist, as a DJ, as uh, somebody who's worked in broadcasting and as a general like bringer together of people. Like I've always done big underground events with other people, like held really wild parties in warehouses <laughs> and back lots. And like, I've done that forever. Like I know how to get a thing together and pull it off. Hell yeah. So like, so this, this was a really intuitive way to do that. Also, as I was a mother, you know, like this project, I have to give credit to like that sacred space of motherhood because it allows you to get still and quiet and kind of small and reflective in ways that the world doesn't always allow people to do, to be, you know? So this was uh, that, how can I stay tapped into the creative world in this incubation space of of motherhood of of soft gentleness of reflection a reflection so that's the the why the way it all started and it just kind of kept feeding itself in this way because 
we have such an incredible community of friends and they all always roll through our area in Santa Fe where we live. Every year they have Indian market and me and my partner Chinupas, most of our homies are indigenous or queer or artists of color and they would all cruise through, you know, and like, and then they would all disperse throughout the world. I just felt compelled to share the conversations of my peers, of people who I wasn't witnessing their stories kind of archived in this way. And I did a lot of research before I started this project and I didn't see anything like it existing. And I really wanted, podcasting was so new, like you said, that there was like The Moth, which was like a story podcast. And there was This American Life and, you know, those kind of narrative and um, journalistic podcasts, but there was nothing that I could find really like this. And I did my homework. So I was pretty excited to start it. And now today it's, that's a very different story. And we can talk about that later, but at the Mm -hmm. time, this was kind of a radical action of creative art making, you know, versus just like telling people stories. It was like, wow, this is, this is a, a beautiful piece of work. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because in 2014, like you're saying, that was a huge void in culture in America, period. And also very much so in the art world in terms of, as like you're saying, like who, what were the conversations that were being had and whose stories were being told? And it sounds like, because I was going to ask you, like kind of which came first, was it a recognition of that emptiness, you know, of that void Or was it just kind of like a natural extension of who you would interview anyways, because like that's your community, you know, an extension of a lifetime up until that point of like building relationships in arts and creativity and mystery. Yeah, I never set out to create an archive intentionally for like marginalized or underrepresented communities. Like I never even thought of my communities as that really, like all that language, as I said, how language shifts and evolves has just been put into practice more recently as we've been initiating shifts in the way that we recognize privilege and oppression um, on a more, uh, on a scale of communication, you know? And so for me coming from community spaces that sit in undervalued respects, I guess. It's funny when you are, when you come from those places, you don't think of yourself like that until you are reflected by the privileged world. And then they're telling you you're that and you're like, really? <laughs> like, I know <laughs> it's just funny how language that's trying to uplift can oppress accidentally. So like I guess yeah. in 2014, when I started this, it wasn't my intention to create an archive for this underdeserved community or communities. But as I've grown with the world in learning how to talk about things. I note that it is that, and I want to honor and respect that and make space for these voices to be shared out further and use the appropriate language that feels respectful and um, with the times. Right. Like what's wild to me too, is that when you first started this project, our framework, I'm, I'm going to claim that, like our collective community framework was like coming from just a totally different place in terms of 
art and being artists and creativity. And, you know, I don't know how much of that is just that the world has changed around art and culture or how much of that is just like where we came from and where we started from. And when, when you're doing this podcast, it really wasn't about the art world, capital T, capital A, like it really was a space of all of us are artists, all of us are making in different ways. And like, what is that like? And being curious and asking questions and making space for conversation that we're in the, when we're in the day-to-day life, there isn't always, you know, the time to like really, really sit down with each other and have those conversations. And I'm wondering, like, I mean, I think we'll go back to this question throughout our conversation, but what was that transition like? Because I would say in the past couple of years, your trajectory as an artist and as a space maker and connector and and conspirator within the art world, the spaces that you're going in and out of has really changed. And there is more access, relationship, understanding around like the art world. And like, what have you gained? What have you lost? Like, what are some reflections around around that? I'm like master class in like what the <laughs> f- going on. <laughs> it's so true the way you express it because it's like a different world. Being an artist and making art for the love of making art. And that was like the tagline of the podcast in the beginning was what makes the human make the art. And it was very mm. inquiry-based around process, around intentionality in that more tender creative making way. And now it's like, how to survive the art world. (laughs) And that that arc, you know, and um, for me, witnessing so many of my peers that I've interviewed on the podcast become world-renowned artists is like exciting and so bizarre and like a really deep lesson in, uh, what is it called? Uh, Perseverance, you know, of like not giving up continuing to shoot your shot, continuing to like show up for yourself and your community in the face of oppression and um, rejection and misses. Because at any time, it just feels like at any time it could be your time. And so you just got to kind of keep holding on for the ride, you know? So I've witnessed that I've witnessed from in the studio, like interviewing friends like Nani Chacon, like while she was like making a painting in her little studio and just talking about the concepts behind her murals and works and like her color choices and very like intimate conversations around the making of art to, you know, um, interviewing like my friend Jeffrey Gibson, who's like going to be in the Venice Biennale. Like it's like the polar opposite of like what it means to be an artist, but they all sift into the same conversation of like expression, of community, of sustaining practice. I think it, it is really interesting and something that I'll come back to over and over again, probably throughout my life and uncover more and more through this archive. And I hope other people do too. Like my my goal is to, no matter where this project goes, you know, to have this archive available. And I think I think that that's important because it's like a time capsule of where we're going as artists. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like within that, 
huge arc and those polar opposites that you're talking about, which is documented through Broken Boxes. Is there anything, because I, I hear it a lot in what you're sharing, what was gained, all of the things that you've carried with you from that space in order to, in a way, like disrupt, you know, business as usual in terms of the different art spaces that you're traversing now, which I think is so potent and so important. I know that I appreciate it and I've benefited from from that, the way that you you really, really do in your practice hold on to all of it. And I'm just curious, like, are there things that you miss or is there anything that that has been lost in that transition? I don't know. I I want to quote Chinupa here, but I'm like, <laughs> just be quoting Chinupa. <laughs> but like when we first got together about 15 years ago, he told me something that was really beautiful. He's my partner. He's also a recurring host on the podcast. He's an artist um, and I am his studio director among other artists. Um, but he told me that he often feels like he is the skin of the bubble. Um, so you're not existing on the inside and you're not existing on the outside. You are that layer, that, that line, that thing in between. And you also talk about that in your practice, um, Amaryllis, of uh, the, uh, like existing on the, in the, in between. And I think that that's like the kind of people and the kind of work that I gravitate towards. So although I am having to like engage with museums and institutions that are prestigious, I find very often that the people who are inviting me into the spaces for my own practice or for the artists I work with for their practices, that those people also find themselves in these places mm. that are also that that in-between space. And they're like, let me bring my community with me. I think it's it's interesting because we can create monoliths so quickly of each other, of like the different worlds, art world, like creative world, music world, whatever. But nothing is a monolith. Like nothing is the other. We are each other. We are, we exist in everything that calls us to it. And we just have to like find ourselves within that. So, so I would say that as I have to navigate these spaces, either through like email correspondence or through going and supporting installations or doing big projects, I'm always so pleasantly surprised how many dope folks are existing within these systems, you know, that are us. Mm -hmm. Exact reflection and have the same like excitement and woes and frustrations. It's a shared experience, but I don't know why. For some reason, I feel like it's human nature that we other each other so that we feel absolved of accountability to participating or something. Like I just, I'm not really into that energy. I never have been. And I don't want to be like bypassy or anything, but I, I really feel like we can find ourselves in everything we choose to participate in and we can have accountability in that. And yeah. And so I, even within spaces that are high end museums or, you know, big, big concert venues or whatever, I'm always operating on a level of like, do it yourself, like grassroots, like who are the people like kicking it with the, <laughs> with the folks who have to like haul the, 
haul and set up everything. Like I, that's my background because I come from theater. Like I like the work part of the work and you can find that everywhere. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it makes so much sense that your background and that your training is in theater because how you move and how you operate is so much that like so much like as a, as an ensemble, as like a chorus and like finding those harmonics, you know, within like a community and a group of people and tuning into that. And uh, it makes me think of just like you're a multidisciplinary creative person. You do production, you do creative administration, you do studio directorship and, and management, as well as like you're a DJ and you're a sound artist. And this podcast has been an extension of an amalgamation of all of those things. Um, <laughs> and you're constantly kind of like finding that pulse within community and within the different spaces and the groups of people that you're weaving together and in between. I love that so much, what you shared around like the, the skin or the membrane. And that's like such an uncomfortable space. Maybe why I'm so interested in it. Maybe why we're so also like connected around that devotion to like being in that uncomfortable in-between space it's like actually really challenging to maintain and it's become more and more so challenging I find over the past 10 years for example and part of your work too within all of those different realms of your practice is listening as like an essential pillar of what you do and deep listening and listening to not just like peers and comrades and, you know, having these artists conversations, but also listening to the places, listening to <laughs> the sounds of literally just where you are, of uh, the earth and the planet and context, as well as like listening in on culture and the collective and just uh, like larger, broader context, as well as listening to yourself and listening to that mystery that you're talking about, which so very much resonates with that in-between space is like really, really listening to the mystery. I'm wondering what it's been like over this past 10 years for this project to listen so deeply in community and to hold that space and yeah, just like some reflections around around that because it's such an essential part, you know, of what you do. Yeah, community is the most beautiful thing and it's the most fucked up thing. <laughs> being in community, being accountable to people, to yourself, and also understanding when um, you're not being validated, respected, or seen, or you're trajectory and members of your community trajectory um, misalign or stop aligning. And it's what's really interesting to me is witnessing how people deal with themselves and each other in community and like how that's ref like reflected um, on their trauma of what they've gone through in their lives, in their community that they came up in, um, their, their culture, and the the way that they choose to use identity as a marker for 
clarity and like a kind of a signpost to attract community and how that can be really incredibly joyous and really um, traumatizing for all involved, you know? So it's something that I've been thinking really deeply about. And this project has catalyzed a lot of friendships that are lifelong friendships, like have become family. And it's also like set in motion, like the possibility of community in that exact way that has exploded all over and not (laughs) been beneficial for me and like actually caused a lot of harm for me. And it's really interesting that this on a personal note is like a slice of what everyone probably goes through in their life. But this is kind of my channel through which I'm experiencing it with, you know, and I'm a pretty private person. And I, I like, I'm one of those kind of people that I'm a ride or die, you know, like I, like if we align and we're homies, like I will show up. And, um, with that comes expectation, I think that I'm actually like navigating and dealing with right now of letting go because you can't expect people to return the energy. And that's a huge part of being in community like and sustaining community is to understand that you can't expect people to show up for you the way that you feel you have for them. And so through this work of broken boxes with the community that I've built and maintained, like I've really had to like um, grow as a person myself in, in social aspects of like going with the flow understanding everybody's coming from different situations that like the only thing I can control is my own my own way of doing things and my own reaction to things and I really believe that community is just such a golden special thing and I want to also acknowledge that the harm that we can cause to each other in community of like not understanding each other not understanding where we come from and all of that, you know, like this, this work has shown me myself in ways that I could have never imagined, both beautiful and complicated. And, you know, I say this because this is my work, but I'm sure everybody has their version of it. You know, these are just like little reflections that I'm, I'm having as I'm celebrating 10 years of this, you know, Deep friendships have been made and deep friendships have been lost. And it's all part of being what being in community is. It's not all, all roses, you know, <laughs> you, you got to really look at yourself and how you are and be accountable to that community and partnership in any way forces you to look at yourself. Oh, yeah. I love and I really, really appreciate you going into that a bit because it can be easy to look at this decade-long project as uh, utopic and to romanticize it as just like a, yeah, like a beacon of community and interconnectedness and collaboration and friendship. And it's all of those things. And also that there's like some real rugged like portals that each of us have to go through in terms of how we're choosing to relate to each other. And especially like going back to holding space for in between inside and outside and those polarities that it's like, 
becoming more and more a choice of relation to be either like hold each other up on pedestals like oh my god you're amazing I'm obsessed like yes to everything that you do or to be like you know fuck them what a fucking sellout like I don't trust that bitch (laughs) which I'm guilty of both you know what I mean I like definitely like ping pong between those polarities right now because it's so easy and I think it's like going back to what you're saying about that human urge to categorize, you know, because it makes us feel certain or safe within ourselves. And like the space that you're holding is like finding those kind of challenging, rugged contradictions and slowing down enough to be able to recognize and witness and listen to each other, even within you know, communities where we have already found some sense of connection or belonging. It's wild work. It's in the wilderness. Yeah. And I think it's like doing, doing that work of compassion and understanding it all boils down to what we can control as ourselves. Like the world is beautiful and also wicked, you know, and within our, each of us exists those two things and we have to be aware of our wakes and the energy that we share out. And it's, there's room for everything, you know, that's, what's beautiful about this earth and this world and being human is yes. And like all of it can exist. <laughs> Where I've come up against hurdles in community is when, um, is when people are calling for compassion yet not giving compassion, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's like at some point, and I've noticed this more in the past, like five or so years as social media is really heightened at a certain point, when do we become the very thing that we are um, fighting against, you know? And I, and I just, as somebody who watches and witnesses, I just want to be mindful of that, you know, that we are not um, becoming the very monster we are trying to slay, so to speak, you know? Um, and I can't do anything but like exist in my life in the way that I feel is a good way. And I don't ever push any expectations on anyone else or try not to, you know, and I apologize to anybody who, who I have, you know, (laughs) but I, I just feel like, the only thing that I can control is my own reaction to the world. And for me, I, I choose to um, practice radical compassion. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just like, I think for me, sustaining community is about really, especially when you disagree, like sit in that and like, try to understand why, like, that's been my biggest thing recently is like when people piss me the fuck off or like, they don't react the way I thought, or like they like slow ghost on me or don't call me back. Or like, I thought we were homies, but then I don't hear from you. Like, I just have to sit in the why, you know, like, what is this person going through that they no longer need my support and friendship for, you know, like I, and all I can do is send them love and compassion and hope that if it's meant for us to be in community again, we will. Right. But also be thankful for if it's not in my best interest as a human being to be in relationship with certain community members that 
I, it's just not in the cards and it's, it sifts away in such a good and beautiful, healthy way. So we can both grow, you know, all of those things like to deeply consider them is something that in the past few years of witnessing the toxicity of social media and the power of it, it's like, there's so much positive change that comes from social media, but I have seen it degrade the mental health of so many friends that I, I'm a little skeptical, <laughs> you know, like I just feel like we're in an age and because broken boxes is a communication platform, we're in an age of communication that is wild. And I'm, I'm still trying to like, listen and witness and understand how we are evolving as species. Like, how are we really communicating with each other? And I'm not, I'm not certain of where we're going yet. Yeah, I, I'm curious in terms of like what you were talking about around disagreements and how to be <laughs> in relation to each other and in community with each other and being able to like sit in that place of disagreement. Has that changed in terms of like the conversations on broken boxes or in community or both and in terms of like the capacity to withstand the discomfort of disagreements between you know peers yeah i think that um we have less tolerance for opposing values and i've noticed it tremendously in the past couple of years it's almost like we've often turned our relationship to being into like a football game or something you're for or against you know like and whatever the insert the things <laughs> the platforms we are set up to communicate on have word counts they have limits they have filters they have algorithms and so we have to communicate in this very curated and tailored colonial way that actually gets off on conflict so it actually mm -hmm. feeds off of our hatred and our conflict and like pushes that content forward for us to see and react to. So it's this really interesting and dangerous monster of hatred that can inform. I mean, if, if we could sit down and play a game of uh, cards and talk about the way we feel about certain things, we would probably find a lot of overlapping values and a few things that we disagree on, which we could debate and understand each other's perspective. But that's not the way we communicate anymore. I think that you have to be really mindful to look up and talk to people, to get off of your phone when you're in those uncomfortable situations, when you're in a waiting room or when you're, you know, at a party and you don't immediately see anybody you know, whereas before we could feel awkward and introduce ourselves and like <laughs> start to get to know each other. We, we have created our silos of people who affirm our values so clearly and truly that anybody who might threaten that is automatically an enemy. And I just, I just don't know if that's a really healthy way to be as a species, because um, I really think that that is what breeds large-scale harm is misunderstanding, 
um, and the inability to um, recognize complexity and nuance. So, yeah, I just, I, I just think that over the past ten years of this project, I've witnessed a maybe it's a policing and a censorship within my extended communities that doesn't allow for investigation around what the possibilities are for solutions to like our current social issues, even if it means looking at the darkness in our own histories and our own, in our own experiences as living beings for our own lives, you know, like we, we kind of only show our best sides. And I think that that is not true for any human being. No one is absolved of causing harm. We all need to acknowledge that, you know, but we all have these little soapbox and we have our own chorus that we're preaching to or choir that we're preaching to. And <laughs> I don't know if that's really healthy for, for where we're going as a species, as far as like looking at it from a, a journalistic, like broadcasting communications perspective, somebody who studied communications, like it feels a little um, fascist to me. Totally. Yeah, it's so true. Like what you said around that, these ways of being in relationship to each other, it's like an algorithm that thrives on conflict, but without any space to like actually get into it. Like you were talking about, I mean, I remember, I just like have seen the shift within myself and within my community so clearly where like, me and my closest friends would argue all the time. We had like different points of view. We had like really different lived experiences. And there is a way in which we had this like, or maybe built together this muscle of being able to disagree with each other and not necessarily find a resolution at the end of the conversation, but a way in which that then didn't end our relationships or impact the ways that we cared for each other in in terms of like throwing throwing people away. And I remember like it was such I mean, it's kind of like, you know, that whole analogy of like the frog and the in the water. It's just like that slow boil. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, how did we get here? You know? And I just like, so it's it's happened really slowly over time. But I do remember moving to Connecticut and going to my MFA program. And to me, like school, maybe one of the cool things about it in my mind is like a meeting of, of people coming from very different places and being able to argue, you know, and like have debates. And I was so surprised, like how little tolerant, how, how automatically people felt personally attacked by a difference in opinion and just like not only that shift on on social media but also then how that impacts like our ability to be in relationship with each other and to like argue and that it's like not necessarily I'm throwing you out but like I am not co-signing <laughs> this belief system or this value or like and I'm gonna be able to like we can argue with each other and have those spaces of debate. And with social media, like, you know, it's like what you're saying. It's also like incredibly powerful and potent. And, you know, I think back to like 
the you know i'm like a a 90s kid i think back to that time like there was never going to be a, an exchange of power ever in terms of like media landscape and and culture it was like dominated by a very very small group of people who have a long-term project of domination and there was never going to be that handing over like there was never going to be that uh relinquishing of of power as far as i could tell so social media was taking that power and having that voice collectively and what i appreciate about broken boxes is like this podcast was a part of that movement of being like no we just create our own spaces in terms of historically marginalized um bipoc people queer community queer and trans communities um of taking the mic (laughs) and broadcasting it and finding each other, you know? And so it's like that thing of what I appreciate about Broken Boxes is it has been a part of that movement and like it isn't constrained by A, advertisement and and corporate, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Investment, but- Sponsorship? Yeah, sponsorship, that's the word. And also that there's no time limit, that there's uh, space to be able to ask questions and be curious in a way that it's just like, there. It's, it's not the format, right? Like social media isn't the format. And yet it's the way that we're expected to communicate and relate to each other, which is, it's just been such a wild thing to witness. It really has. And I'm, I started... Like I said, I started the podcast before Instagram was really like uh, the go-to for everything, you know, and I just haven't really nurtured that space for this podcast because I always felt like this isn't that. Like I have an Instagram account and if people find it, every time I release an episode, I put up a post um, to inform the community who's there about it. But I've never felt like that was the appropriate platform for something as renegade as this. And it kind of makes me feel good that I don't have to feel chained to marketing this, that it is like this little treasure that is bouncing around. <laughs> You're right. Because then we like, you don't, there are like, literally we don't, you know, you, this project doesn't owe anything to anyone except for the people who are in conversation. Like we owe that reflection and that like space, you know, to each other and to ourselves, but there's not like an external demand of this is what you have to, this is how you have to show up that kind of like slow, (laughs) that kind of like cultural fascism on the rise that, which is, you know, just like total domination and total control. Yeah. It's control. And like I said, like I'm coming to realize coming out of that pressure to act and behave a certain way always that the anarchist in me doesn't want to. (laughs) What it is. Like, it's just like, don't tell me what to do. Yeah. Because maybe like my voice and my platform could be supporting so many more um, activations, but I feel like I want to challenge the snowball effect that we're in around control and domination over each other in in, um, almost like, what is it called? Um, uh, Monocropping (laughs) or I don't know, like everything just becomes (laughs) the same thing. And it's like, yeah, where's the complexity? I don't know. 
And I'm kind of stoked that I never went corporate or big sponsorships or like never really wrote any grants for this or never really like tied myself into any one like even community of like identity for this project because it allows for um, that true like independent spirit to persist. And even, even to this day, like I, I, I feel so relieved that it's like something that can just exist on the margins. And that's actually like kind of a superpower. This is like that little juicy nugget that gets to live on the margins and um, just exist for those who can, who can dig a little deeper, like, like going to a record store and having to actually like sift through vinyl. <laughs> like, yeah, don't just look what Spotify recommends, you know, like now I'm going off. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's interesting though, like in terms of thinking about the different forms that communication um takes and uh especially like over the span of this project you've also kind of changed and and shifted and woven in between a few different art worlds and you know it started with like you were talking about community connections and broadcasting conversations that were really important but that were not valued in terms of a uh, a uh, you know, public place of connection. And so it started with what you're talking about of just like friends, a uh, community that you already had, things that were happening in underground, in living rooms, at the kitchen table, in shared spaces. But then you talk about a shift around moving outwards into people that you weren't necessarily in direct like friendship or relationship to but this era of broken boxes that was about being in community around like creative action and social justice and I'm wondering if you could just like share a little bit about those collaborations and kind of moving into that space as a stage of this project what was that like? Yeah, I think I just, you know, I come from a background that's always been advocating for humanity, for the freedom of all people. And that's that's something that has, I mean, I grew up with, like growing up with in Hawaii, you know, just like understanding um, the value of sovereignty and of autonomy for all people, you know, and queer communities and um, indigenous folks and everything, you know, is just like understanding the necessity of freedom and autonomy. And so those values run really deep in me and in my family and, you know, just like as a, as a pillar of who I am. And so, yeah, I think it was a natural progression to move from the studio out into the world a bit more. And um, as I was doing my podcast, I was making friends who were introducing me to friends and um, just the general experience of being an artist and being in community with other artists, you meet people and you vibe and you connect and you share values. And one of the artists that I got to meet was Maria Hutfield. And um, she invited me to archive her um, call response project that she did in Canada with um, co-curated with Tara Hogue 
and um, Tanya Willard. And it's like First Nations, Indigenous women centered, but then they collaborated with artists of all diverse backgrounds for this like really large project. And it was all around the Truth and Reconciliation Act in Canada. And it Mm. was really beautiful to step into that space and get to know Maria through that work, who is like a lifelong friend, you know, and get to understand and see myself and my work witnessed as an actual act of art and not just something that's supporting artists, but be valued as a project, as an art project. Like it kind of, it was something that I had never experienced before. Cause I've always just been interviewing my homies and it's just been like that of like, I'm documenting you as artists. And it was the first time where it was like, Oh no, you'll document us as artists and we'll share this art project on your art project, (laughs) you know? So it was like, (laughs) I felt seen in that way. And like props to Maria Hupfield, like she's, she's a badass. Um, She's a dear friend and um, somebody who like, we want to talk about like not bending to the trends. Like she's always, she always questions everything. And I really appreciate the way that she has chosen to activate her career and the choices that she's made because they're not always the suspected ones, but I just love that she's formed her own path in such a strong way. She's a real big inspiration to me. And so that was the kind of the first project that really brought me out of just the studio, the Skypes and the the interviews at our home in Santa Fe. And and then I I, um, found out about this artist, Demian Deneyaji's work through their uh, thesis from their um, art school project. It was called um, Bury My Art at Wounded Knee. And I called them up or I texted them or whatever, DM them, messaged them to be (laughs) interviewed on the project. And we just really connected as like soul siblings in this beautiful way. And yeah, it was through the broken boxes that we met each other and we continued to work together for years. And Broken Boxes has supported their work through Rise Indigenous, which is like a radical initiative, like amplifying Indigenous voices, primarily queer and matriarch voices. Um, Yeah, just kind of really supported each other's practices, collaborated on a lot of art and just like really built a beautiful friendship. And that, that is something that I'll always treasure is that friendship as well, just kind of supporting each other through our practices. And yeah, I just really did the best I could to show up for their work and uh, yeah, just appreciate what, what space they were, have been able to hold and wish the best for what they continue to hold. You know, I think it's, it's complicated to be um, really radical in the way you activate your politics through your art. And I think that Demian and Rise is doing an incredibly generous job and we don't always survive in our hearts when we put our hearts out in that way. So, you know, for all artists who are activating in that way, like I just always hope people take care of themselves and, um, you know, like nurture their nurture themselves as they have to be on the front lines in those ways. So that project was really important to me and we went out and did work all over together and yeah. And then of course, standing rock and the work I did with Chinupa, my partner, 
around the no DAPL movement, the um, camps and you know, there's so much archived on broken boxes. I don't really feel like going back into it right now. <laughs> you guys can all go and listen to live recordings from on site at Ocheti Shakoin. You can listen to my interviews with Chinupa about his experience as somebody from there. And even my last conversation with you, Amaryllis, uh, we talk about that quite a bit and the nine year anniversary episode. So yeah, all those things kind of pulled me out of the notion of individual into the notion of like collective support and care. And, um, you know, those, those space, there's others, there's other, um, projects too, that I've supported. I can only mention a few, like every time I start talking about the work I do, it's so dense that it feels exhausting. To think I'm like, those are two instances of like a dozen of things that I did in that time period of like going out into the world and um, working with like other artists to affect change and using broken boxes as a platform. But yeah, it was a, it was an intense time, you know, um, it was a time of understanding what it really means to be in community, understanding what my boundaries are of how much I can give without feeling extracted from, understanding sometimes you can't help, you know, like sometimes there's there's nothing to fix that you can be witness, that you can provide space and that's about all you can do. And um, that's a really powerful gesture. And sometimes it's just about showing up for yourself and knowing when like, a project has run its course for like your own well-being and that you have to like collect your energy back. So yeah, it's it that time period. I, I think it's kind of um, popped off around 2016 was beautiful. And I learned so much about like the importance of this broadcast project and amplification and communication in the arts, you know, and how arts and activism and advocacy intersect. Did you ever, in the span of this project, have you ever had moments where you just wanted to give up, throw in the towel? You know, there's a difference between uh, completing a project and just walking away from it. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering more so around like, you know, you had mentioned when people are doing this work that it can it can really take a toll and that there's a necessity to be able to tend to your heart and your spirit and your health um without necessarily closing closing down or shutting off and yeah i just wonder like were there moments where you wanted to walk away from this work or where you were just kind of like done. Yeah. I actually took a whole year off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I rebroadcast some stuff during that time, but I wasn't actively interviewing. And it was right when the pandemic, right before the pandemic hit, I think, or right around that time, like right before I ramped up to doing even more, I kind of got small and I kind of like took an energetic break from like doing this work because doing the, all the, like the community amplification of large projects and frontline work, it kind of exhausted me. It like kind of stripped me down to the point where 
like I was talking about earlier about like, how are we communicating and why I started to just feel like I was a, um, like I was an Instagram page or whatever for other people. Like there was no, I didn't feel like the reciprocation of like the honor of my practice and what I could offer as more than just like a sounding board for other things. And there's so much strife and conflict in the world and in our communities. There's no way that a small independent broadcasting platform and one human being could actually hold the need of global struggle. And it started to just weigh on me in a way that I felt like I have, you know how they say that you have like fight, fright, or freeze. Is that what they are? Yeah. And appease. <laughs> fight, flight, freeze, appease. So I think what happened to me around that time was mine was like freeze or flight, you know, like I was like, I don't know how to step up in the ways that the world and my communities need. And I don't know if I'm adding anything. I need to like regenerate myself. You know, sometimes like it's weird too, because now we're in this space of call out culture where if you get silent, people like publicly shame you for being silent, which I do understand. Like we need to speak up for things that we know about and can speak on and have capacity to. But I think there's also like a forgetting in the way we activate in communication where it's like, we need to tag out with each other. Like when you're running a marathon, you pass the fucking baton. And like, we're not allowing that to happen for each other right now. It's like, everybody has to go a hundred percent all the time until you fucking burn out and your mental health suffers. And I just don't agree with that. Like tap out. Like support other people who have capacity to be forward facing while you're regenerating for sure, if you can, but don't exhaust yourself and then beat yourself up and shame yourself for not being able to go at a hundred percent all the time. It's literally not humanly possible, especially now that we have access to the issues of the entire fucking world every day from the moment we wake up. Our brains have not evolved to understand that type of struggle and trauma. We literally haven't evolved with our technology. It takes us longer because our systems are so much more integrated and so much more complex. So we have to give ourselves grace. And so I think that's what I, that's what happened to me with that year that I kind of unplugged was I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I can't, I, like, I can't even... Um, feel anymore. I just feel like I'm regurgitating what I'm supposed to say. And that doesn't feel genuine or ethical for the way that I run my practice. So, so yeah, I took a break and I regenerated. And when I came back, I refocused in a much more intentional way to like amplify stories of survival for artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you're talking about that, it makes me think about like something that you touched on earlier, which is the kind of like rugged individualism versus like understanding interconnection and being a part of community. And when you're talking about like, we need to be able to, to tap out and to be able to pass the baton, you know, and each of us have space to rest and regenerate so that we can like really come back and full force in solidarity and support with each other. And it just made me think about how like that 
philosophy or that way of being in community, it does require trusting the collective. It it actually re- requires decentering yourself, you know, as like the only one or as like having to go what you're talking about, like at a hundred percent all the time. And it is really like a capitalist way of conducting our lives and of thinking. And so it's interesting. I appreciate that just naming that, especially as it relates to art and and culture and community, because there is like such an emphasis on the individual and of like what one single solitary person is doing or capable of doing or the illusion of being an individual. And, you know, we we have a lot of these conversations with each other too, just because it kind of ties back to the in-between space for me, is that a lot of that like behind the scenes collective work, it's not public facing, you know? It's like something that is happening uh, in person, a lot of the times it's happening, you know, offline and that there, as, as there's like more and more of a need to be like a public collective voice, it can be really, really uncomfortable to actually like trust the work that you're doing in the collective to decenter yourself and to do work offline and like you know, we talked about this in when you interviewed me uh, for Broken Boxes, but you, a, a lot of our work together over the past couple of years, like, you know, you are someone who is able to plug into media and find ways to be able to exist and interact on social media, on like these public facing platforms in communal and generative ways, I think. And so, a couple of years ago, I realized that social media like actually wasn't accessible for the for the mental landscape that I navigate. And I remember my friend, you know, dearest friend Antoinette, I remember just like having this conversation with her about just being so extremely like in an emotionally distraught place around how to connect with the world and how to connect with people and that it was like actually being on online in that way was sending me into just total uh totally destabilizing spaces because of the the different things that I'm walking with and working with um and I remember her saying like well maybe it's just not accessible to you maybe that actually like isn't within the realm of accessibility for your mind and your mental health and what you navigate. And so, you know, as we started working together, you took over my Instagram account and we've had a lot of conversations around how to do that and uh, and connect. And a lot of that has been really incredible. I feel so grateful for the ways that you've been able to figure that out every day. And also occupying that in-between space and trusting the collective and stepping away from a uh, public for, from uh, you know doing the work online versus what am I accountable to in terms of like community and collective and all of the work that like isn't going to be seen, you know, that isn't going to be um, broadcasted. 
And I'm wondering if you could talk about like in that time that you stepped away, how did you tolerate the discomfort of that? And also what was the, what, where did you find that like regeneration in order to be able to come back? Yeah, I think that I developed practices that I still utilize today. I found out what I needed to survive mentally and physically and be um, able to support large amounts of creative people because honey, creative people are really complicated. (laughs) And I work with this all the time behind the scenes and there is just so much passion and ego and tenderness and um, like things that don't make sense, but you have to try to like contextualize them and be patient and hold space. You know, it's just like a really complicated thing to like work really closely with artists. And so during that time where I kind of like pulled back into myself, I did therapy. I found that because I come from a place that water was an integral part of my life growing up, um, like water sports, um, surfing, paddling canoe, um, uh, fishing, diving, being in the ocean every single day. Like I, and now I live in the desert in New Mexico. <laughs> I realized that water and even beyond water, like just physical movement and physical activity is really critical to my well-being. So I developed a practice of daily exercise um, and if possible, water, you know, involved and uh, med- a meditation practice where I'm learning how to every day take time to be still and not think, not problem solve, not have to like put out a fire, just be. And that's such a radical act because it's so hard. It's so Mm -hmm. hard to just be in the moment, in the present, and just like look at yourself, like just sit with yourself. And uh, within that time, I've been able to fall in love with myself. Like RuPaul says, if you can't love yourself, (laughs) how can you love anybody else? (laughs) And I really think that's true. You know, like I had to, being a mother, being a partner to like an artist, being somebody who supports artists in front action or direct action movements and frontline action, being somebody who's constantly a lifeline for multiple people, I was tapped. I had, I had nothing inside of me and I fell out of love with myself because I lost myself. I didn't know where I was. And so, yeah, just building up my own toolkit and practice of like beyond surviving anything outside of me, how do I survive myself, you know? Mm. And I think everybody's like little toolkit is different, but if you are somebody who's on social media or like looking at your phone a lot, I know that you're not because you've already come (laughs) up with your own practice, but like just to the listeners, like look at how off, how much time you spend on your phone. Like all the apps have, like, they can show you how much time a day average you spend on your phone and try to start by splitting that in half and giving yourself that much time to like exercise or meditate or read a book or do something else. And 
it like automatically like being on the planet here right now in the place where you are automatically like you just will start to feel alive again and remember that yes there is hard complicated like earth shattering things happening right now that we need to be aware of be accountable to and do what we can but also if we can exist where we are our direct community will suffer our bodies will suffer our minds will suffer and we'll be no good to anybody it's like put your put your mask on first right like when you're on the airplane and then help the kid it's that kind of thing and i because i have like a codependent tendency it's taken me a long time to realize that in order to help anybody else, I have to be solid. And it's really interesting because in that time of finding those values of myself and asserting boundaries, what has fallen away, who can't benefit from me in the ways that I would give um, and how those, those relationships or like communities have just like, without conflict or explosion, just generally like, dissipated, you know, because I've set boundaries of not, not giving to a point of exhaustion. And I think that that's really like, there's a sadness to that, but there's a beauty to that, to knowing what you, what you're capable of in order to like exist as an artist, in order to exist as a community member, like part of community is like you were saying, everybody has a role. And like going back to the passing to the the baton, like we can't do everything all at once, or that's not a community. Like everybody contributes to a whole and we take turns. And like, sometimes somebody is cooking and sometimes like somebody sweeping the floor, like we can't all sweep the floor at the same time, you know? (laughs) So yeah. So that's what happened in that time of regeneration. And also like really looking deeply at my personal relationship, you know, and like supporting my partner as they healed through a bunch of stuff and just like not giving up on things that we value and choosing our life, like re-choosing it and like owning it and going through the darkness together in this beautiful way. And um, yeah, just a lot of healing. Um, And that spilled over through into the pandemic, of course, because right as we were starting to do that work, the pandemic shut down everything. So of course, we're going to have all this time (laughs) to really (laughs) kind of figure out (laughs) how to heal through a lot of like learned behaviors. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about that return, that return to this format and deciding to continue Broken Boxes after stepping away and being in like a, you know, huge process of self-reflection and regeneration. What was the impetus to return? And what was that drive that you were bringing back with you of like the why? Well, I'm definitely going to have to shout out Raven Chacon because... He, I, I, he was like an early interview that I did. Um, and he's a friend of mine and Chinupa's, um, and we've worked like been in the worlds together, me through music and Chinupa through art with Raven in various levels. And Raven was doing this residency where he was invited to do a live broadcast through, um, a organization or institution in San Francisco and so he sent me an email and he's like, I'm in, I'm curating like a broadcast channel basically out of San Francisco, and then it'll be available online. 
And do you want to do um, like a, like, I think it was four months or three months or six months, a run of broken boxes on it, basically. So it was like, he used his residency to invite like a group of music and sound artists he appreciated to be on this radio, a station called Radio Coyote. And it was just like the perfect seed for me to like find fun new ways to um, do broken boxes, maybe try like different things, bring it back into an art form again. So I did a series of conversations for that. I, I interviewed a bunch of our mutual friends, you know, and um, people that I'd wanted to interview. I did longer introductions. I kind of, because I had a little bit of an honorarium to do it, I spent a lot more time kind of producing them and making them a little bit more professional. <laughs> and it was great. And I also did like, a, um, I did an episode for that, which was like, kind of like a little bit of my background, which I'd never really done before on the podcast. And I did it like as a poem and a mixtape. And I had like family members and friends I grew up with, like leave little voice notes and I put them in there. And yeah, it was just a really fun, easy and safe space to kind of like re-up um, broken boxes. Like, like that invitation really like validated the importance of this work because I really respect Raven's practice and um, the fact that he respects my practice and has even said to me before that like my interview with him when we first did it was one of his favorite interviews that he's had had to date, you know, back then. And um, it's just like really validating when somebody who you admire sees you and invites you to um, not do what they do, but do what you do, you know, like that's the thing is like, I think because of the nature of who I am and the the support systems that I can offer, sometimes I get like filtered into like complete support for another person's practice. But like when people witness me for my practice and like want to celebrate just that, it's huge. It's like so, um, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded that I'm an artist in a way that is so um, nourishing for my being, you know? So, so yeah, that, that Radio Coyote series definitely kicked me back into gear and made me um, just keep going up until this point. And then I was invited by Josie Lopez at the Albuquerque Museum to do a large, but a large exhibition um, celebrating the 10 year anniversary of this project. And so that kind of inspired me to keep going through to 10 years. Yes. <laughs> I think it's interesting because like was the Radio Coyote um, uh, invitation, was that pre-pandemic or during? It, it was definitely during. I remember recording some of the first conversations up in Montana when Chinupa was at the Archie Bray residency. And it was definitely pandemic times because like, it was like masks, social distancing. Like it was just like a weird time to be at a residency, you know, but because it was so rural, like they made it work for him to be a visiting artist. But I just remember being in the little art housing and recording the interviews there. So it was definitely like during the pandemic. 
because I was just thinking about something that you said earlier in the conversation, you know, there was like a stage of a phase of broken boxes where it was really activating on front lines of different uh, movements and extended communities. And then, you know, a year long break. And when you came back, it was during the pandemic and it almost was like, uh, you know, more so revolving around survival and how to survive how to survive uh, as artists in terms of, you know, human human beings, and then also how to survive the art world. And I was curious about any reflections that you have around that, the most recent, like four years of this podcast and this phase. Well, that's where it all started. Yeah, it was with the Radio Coyote interviews, like it uh, was definitely a shift in focus on survival, like coming out of my little... Um, my little introspective bubble of he like healing and like um, creating a solid formation of how I want to move forward in my practice, being invited by Raven to produce a series of broken boxes. I mean, he was like, you can do whatever you can play archive ones. You can create something new like this and that, but I thought it was a great opportunity to like focus in another direction around survival, around how do you survive the art world and just like tap into my community in that way. And also like after I completed the Radio Coyote episodes, I invited Chinupa to become a co-host on the project because he's a practicing artist in the art world in a way that I'm not, you know, I am because I support artists like him, but he's, um, he's on the front lines of like the art world, so to speak in this way that like he could interview a lot of our friends, whereas I'm more like interview style. He's a lot more like peer conversation, like you and I do, you know, where it's like, mm -hmm. it's just this general unpacking of the current experience. And I just loved adding that layer to the podcast. So peppering in his interviews after the Radio Coyote series was just not only relieving for me because I could let go of some of the load where I would still produce it and edit it and this and that, but I didn't have to go through the whole process of the interview. So it was just like sharing the load, like at community, you know, everybody having a task and giving a broader perspective too, because he's a Native American artist and indigenous voice has always been at the forefront of this project, Global Indigenous Voices. So him being an, a practicing Native American artist from North America, it was just really cool because he could just dip in culturally in that way and like really maintain that voice in the project. And so, yeah, also he, because he is a practicing artist, his interviews are particularly generative as far as survival toolkit stuff, you know, because he's talking with other artists who they're showing in shows together right now they're um they're contemplating like oh like what does it mean galleries like collectors art world like saying yes to things saying no to, like there's just this this energy of just being like the moment like I was saying that he kind of captures in a way where I'm more of like a witness on the outside he's like right in it and I just loved I love those episodes you know because there's like a different energy. And so those have continued to pepper out um, from the pandemic. From the past 10 years, both looking at the conversations that you've had and then also um, bringing Chinupa in and these like 
peer-to-peer comparing notes and, you know, conversations in that way? Like, what are the things that that stood out to you in terms of like what, you know, people have put in their survival toolkits and what are the things that then influence you and that you integrated into your own practice? I mean, I mean, everyone can go back and listen, like there's so many gems, you know, and I think it is really valuable to have such different perspectives a lot. Like you were talking about before, like everyone has to build their own toolkit. There really isn't anything that's like a one size fits all. I'm just wondering if there were things that, you know, resonated that are still kind of like in the front of your mind to share with other people from these conversations that you've been having. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to give props to you, Amaryllis, because although we've only done a couple conversations on the record on the podcast and being our fourth like there is there is a lot of work that you and I have done together to uncover like what is in the toolkit and like to like bump up against the edges of like why is this working for somebody else and not for me like you know and just like that that awakening and awareness that it is really a choose your own adventure and like you reflecting back to me like the the excitements and the disappointments and the the triumphs and the fears of being a practicing artist and like what that means and how to navigate it. And then me being able to like share things that I've learned throughout my practice, you know, and just really like, I just have to give props to you and artists like you who are continuing to really like push the way we even experience art and what art even can be, you know, because that's, those are the kind of people that I get down with. And you've really shown me and continued to show me like, like comfortability isn't the fun place, you know? <laughs> and sometimes it's really like a hard place to be is when you push yourself out of your comfort zone, challenging your materials, challenging even how people talk about your work and how you can like maintain authority over how people like put you in a box or a category or try to distill you down to like support their DEI efforts. Like all of that stuff is like conversations I've had with you that has really taught me to look at the art world with a little bit of uh, deeper scrutiny. And so even though I don't have like a quotable, I would just like to say, <laughs> um, I would, you know, look, look to artists who might not be the most obvious choice. And that meaning like they might not have the biggest galleries or they might not be like attending the most high-end residencies, but generally they're the people doing the most deep and concentrated work that it's only a matter of, matter of time before the world wakes up to them, you know? Um, so that would be like something that I've learned through this project, you know, and even just witnessing it take place. Like I said in the beginning, like dozens of artists who I've interviewed are like at various points of acceleration in their career, you know, like, uh, it's, it's baffling and wild and beautiful to witness that I got to be like a small part of their process as friends, as community, and as like somebody to witness them along their way. And I've like wanted to listen back to certain episodes, but I'm like afraid to, because I don't want it <laughs> so bad. Like those Skype days, I'm like those days when I edited out all my own voice, like I'm like, I can't even go back that far in the archive. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> but about the advice that people have offered, I had to go through and actually transcribe a lot of the conversations with the museum that I'm having a show with over the past four years and like really look at the words that these people were sharing. And something that stands out to me was the interview with Castles that Chinupa did. And I actually have been a fan of Castles' work for a long time. And when I found out that they were in a show with Chinupa, like I think like eight or so, seven or eight years ago, I was like, oh my God, Castles, I love their work. Like you have to like meet them and be their friend because <laughs> I want their friend. <laughs> and so of course, Castles and Chinupa really hit it off and connected and they're dear friends and their their interview is so special to me because they it feels like it represents so much of that compassion between communities that you wouldn't necessarily think could vibe so deeply, <laughs> you know, like I just love, I love their friendship. I love witnessing their friendship. It just gives me hope uh, for the world. <laughs> and one thing that Castle said, I kind of jotted it down here. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll just read it. Um, Please. It's really beautiful. Castles, uh, I'm quoting Castles, and they said, I really feel like we're in such a state of polarity. And there is this desire to water everything down so that it can be articulated simply and stripped of its complexity such that we can digest it. And in the stripping of that complexity, we actually just make things so much more complicated. It creates a tremendous problem. I actually think the only way through is divergent, contradicting experiences that allow for a productive disagreement and a holding for the multiplicity of truths, as opposed to having one idea of who's right and who's wrong, which actually doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so yeah, that, boom. Boom, mic drop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes me feel a bit emotional hearing the way that Castles was able to articulate that actually really directly, which is kind of what they're what they're talking about. I really love that. Thank you so much for bringing that back up. I, I also love that interview between Castles and Chinupa. Highly recommend <laughs> a re-listen. So thanks for just like bringing that to the surface. And it resonates so much with so many of the conversations that we've had, you know, I've learned so much from you in our relationship together as, you know, partners in the arts and as well as friends. And also having like really complex, uh, challenging conversations and conversations where we do make space for disagreements. And one of my favorite things is when you, when you just say, I'm going to have to disagree with that. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much because I'm like, yes, this is what, this is why we're sister friends because we hold that space and allow each other to just have conflicting opinions and to talk about it. And, and we laugh together a lot. Like I made a I made a commitment before we started this interview. I told Ginger that I would laugh visibly and express visibly, which this is an audio format, but just to like create a little less editing problems for Ginger <laughs> while producing this episode. So I've done a lot of, uh, I've done a lot of, you know, miming my emotions on the screen, but um, yeah, that there's like, 
there's space for for all of that. And um, please continue. The things that have have risen to the surface. Thank you for bringing that up with Castle's interview. Yeah, I'm glad it really resonated with you. And I think one of the reasons why I selected that quote to share was because of the work you and I do and the fact that we're sitting here and that you continue to show up for my practice and actually like advocate for it and are really stoked about it because I sometimes I'm like, am I yelling into a void? (laughs) My people always remind me, you know, in one way or another. And the fact that you're always so stoked and down to participate is just like the biggest confidence boost ever. And I felt like this quote really spoke to a lot of the underpinnings of your practice around multiplicity and uh, around multiplicity of truths specifically, you know, because that's something you and I talk about a lot and that both of our work does. So yeah, shout out to that quote from Castles and that way of thinking. I think it's really going to transform the world, you know, uh, if as long as we just keep coming back to that remembrance. And then the other toolkit nugget seed like um that I really enjoyed was the conversation with Guadalupe Maravilla um that was also one that Chinupa did and maybe it's the reason why I'm able to pull from his so quickly is because I'm not doing the interview so I'm producing it (laughs) so I like know it a little bit better versus feeling removed because it's me and I I want to distance myself but the Guadalupe uh, Maravilla who's an incredible artist um, and like social rights advocate and community organizer and just a really sweetheart person. They do a lot of sound healing work and they're a cancer survivor and they do a lot of work for folks coming across the border who need like shelter and support because that's part of their story. So um, I'm just going to read a little bit of a quote from the end of their interview, Chinupa and Guadalupe's. And um, Guadalupe says, I think it's really important for all of us to give ourselves a lot of self-care because we have to prepare for what's happening all the time and human beings are going to continue to get challenged and having our spirit and our body and our mental health as healthy as possible is going to be the key going forward for everyone, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you do as a person. I want to give a reminder to please try to take that time to sit in front of the sun for 20 minutes or go for a nice walk, move your body or do that exercise or do that meditation or just eat that healthy meal if you can. Do those things for yourself on a daily basis. If not all of them, then just one of those things is still great. And if we keep doing that, our mental health and our physical health and everything else will follow. Mm. Just love that because it's really true, you know? Yeah. It also like makes me a little emotional too, because it's about that connection that we've been exploring in this interview between a collective necessity for everyone to really build and do what they need to do to like stay around you know like quite literally it's like uh yeah what is it that you need to do to stay here so that we can show up for the work of building the world in a in a different way in an intentional way and that that's just one piece 
and that we're constantly needing to go like moving in between that internal work and that external expression and and bringing it back so yeah yeah i agree it's it's wild because i think that self care has become monetized because of our capitalist structure and it's like become it's gotten like dysmorphia or something like it's become like this weird thing that we can't even look at or understand what it is but i think the core of self care needs to be remembered and maintained because yeah we cannot help the world or anybody if we're a mess you got to clean your own house up first you know yeah it's so true self care has been monetized it's almost like i want to find other language around it because i think self care it has been used also as like a a tool of avoidance and a way to to dismiss a collective actually and dismiss a collective accountability and so i think like shifting self care from that place of like uh nope if it doesn't contribute to my wellness like it isn't for me you know in this way that's really dismissive and not actually the work of creating boundaries which i think does take a certain amount of self reflection which is like that's rugged you know what i mean and i think that there's the kind of self care that guadalupe is talking about is like a really deep tending to an alignment of who we are here in the world and who we are as uh <laughs> as the spirits you know conducting our work in real time with the mess that we're in it's not about avoiding that that uh the reality and the urgency of who we need to be and what we owe each other but it's like self care is a practice of being really solid and being able to show up for the complexity of the world that we live in and the work that we're called to do and self reflection is like and healing like what we're talking about with the long form of broken boxes part of change part of changing and fluidity and growing and evolution is also about healing is also about having space enough to be able to do some deep work of transformation yes yeah that and it's that's also like disrupting that algorithm and short word count like responsiveness that we're being trained into right like it this this project is very much around disruption and sometimes that's gentle and like sometimes that's like subversive and those are actually my favorite kinds of disruption <laughs> yes gentle and subversive disruption because it's not <laughs> going along with the prescription it's not doing what you're told you're supposed to like it's like there's another way <laughs> yeah it's a glitch <laughs> it's a glitch in the system yeah well also i wanted to ask you for your like advice you know i mean you're coming to this with uh in this chapter of you know closing out the chapter of a decade which is like such a prominent time marker and you're coming with a lot of experience a lot of triumph a lot of healing a lot of heartbreak um a lot of lessons and i'm wondering for anyone who's listening um who also is looking for connection and for guidance what what's something that you want to share with people in terms of what you've learned throughout this process and this 
decade of labor and love? Hmm. Well, I knew this question was coming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought about it of like, what would I want somebody to tell me and what have I learned? It's not even necessarily advice somebody has given me, but I've learned it through fucking up and like ruining things because I got reactive. And I think that that's just a human impulse is to react. It's like a survivor tactic that we've developed from our monkey brain times, you know, (laughs) where we have some like different tigers chasing us now, you know, we don't have to like react in the same ways. Like it's part of that evolution, right? We're evolving and we need to continue to evolve and find ways to like energetically shift with the times and like what we're ingesting right now. So my advice is to um, take a beat when you're moving through something in your practice and you feel unsure or taken advantage of, or like things aren't turning out the way you thought they would take a pause and pause for reflection. And, and so I've learned what has sustained not only my relationships, but also my practice as a whole is to move with mindfulness always. And instead of falling into the pattern of reactivity, take time to think about why a situation is happening and the way it is happening and what may be possible, like a possible positive outcome, even if the situation feels stacked against you. And I don't want to promote that optimism and bypass struggle in any form, (laughs) but I do believe that the one and only thing we can really control is our own self and our own reaction and our own energy. And this is a hugely empowering revelation in being aware of our own wake and uh, we have a massive that we can have a massively positive impact on others' lives and our own. And like, I think this is something that uh, we've been talking about throughout, you know, but like to distill it down to like three words, take a beat, you know, like <laughs> don't send that email <laughs> until you sleep on it. <laughs> you know? I have regrets about reactionary behavior because my feelings have been hurt when I haven't thought about the other person's perspective or how, what they might be going through or why they might be engaging in me in a way, you know, like I think the biggest gift to community is to practice compassion and try to see things from another perspective and reactionary behavior can really stifle that and like ruin the potential of community building, like in massive ways. And sadly, that's what social media promotes is reactionary behavior. So take a beat. (laughs) Introspect. I love that. I mean, that's really hard to do in the moment. And I, I, I've, uh, I'm, I'm on that same train of actually like learning, (laughs) learning through failing and fucking up how to take a beat and take a step back and that there's time, you know, to, reflect and to come back to the the conversation with a bit more of a full you know perspective for human to human and uh, like I've learned so much from you just like kind of bringing it into the context of the art world specifically I've learned so much from you about like relationships you know and how to navigate especially as like a, a choosing this path of an artist as a career in all of the complicated things that come along with that. 
and we've had so many conversations about this, but something that sticks out to me in terms of one of the lessons that I continue to integrate into how I'm, you know, operating in the art world is, is you've talked about like, look, it's people, you know, we've increasingly become, uh, we've increasingly just like our modes of communication. We're not looking at each other. We're not seeing each other face to face. And it can be really easy to forget that not everyone wants something from you um, extractively. Not everyone is, yeah, trying to like take and take and take. It's oftentimes human-human curiosity interest that gets convoluted through the transmission via emails, texts, DMs, social media, all of the modes of communication that on the one hand have completely exploded our ability to see outside of ourselves and a a bigger picture and to plug in and in more massive and global ways. And on the other hand have removed a, like literally just sitting in front of each other, right? Like literally just like the, like looking into someone else's eyes And it's a little strange in the art world to figure out, you know, um, when it's when it's like it's kind of moved into a business place and a business model. And we've talked about what are the ways that we can be empowered and choose to move through that while we live in a capitalist society. How can we creatively make different choices And one of the things that I've learned from you is just like, yeah, it sucks to be ghosted on email, even if it's business, even if it's something that has to do with uh, an artist project and monetary transactions and whatever it is, there's such an emphasis on the individual that sometimes we forget that it's just a human on the other side of that email, um, on the other side of that, like ask or communication. And I've been on both sides of that and fall into that, but it is something that's really stuck with me. And that's really helped me because I get incredibly overwhelmed and avoidant of anything outside of, you know, the studio is like practicing and making work is really over. It can be really overwhelming and takes a lot to navigate and can be really hard and monetarily, uh, financially stretched your max and your capacity can feel impossible so those kinds of communications fall through the cracks but just you being like look it's just like people it's like us you know like it's just a matter of treating people like creating a response even if it's a no i'm wondering if you can talk about how you got there cuz i don't think it comes intuitively especially with the frog in the pot analogy, like we're kind of just here and we have to deal with all of the different modes of communication that we have access to. Yeah. I've always been the diplomat of the group. (laughs) Like I've always (laughs) been the one to like initiate problem solving and de-escalation. And like, even from when I was young and there was like fights on the beach, like (laughs) the Canucks versus the Samoans, like trying to like, de-escalate like (laughs) I don't know it's just part of my personality and so I've learned a lot through the past I would probably say 12 years I've maybe 13 now I've been working in support of Chinupa's 
art practice because he's a mixed media artist, a sculptor, um, and he's a maker like you. You know, he he thrives in the studio, getting in the flow time, and he's got like um, neurodivergence where emails and reading graphs and screens are really hard for him. So as my, as his partner, I've like kind of stepped up to support him in that way. And in doing so, it's like launched me into like, again, a master class in understanding the art world, how to communicate with like all kinds of people, how to show up, how to follow up with as little energy towards me uh, or him, you know, and Props to artists who are able to do it all or have maintained the administrative aspects of their practice in addition to like a building like sculptural or craft-based studio practice. Because a lot of times artists who are good at administrative, their practices are also like primarily on the computer, you know, so like Photoshop, poetry, writing, those kind of things. It's like those type of practices really coincide well with like communication strategy for artists. So props to those who have to do all that. Like I know like artists that are in my peer group have to manage their own careers in that way. And it's exhaustive, but I think it's especially exhaustive for artists who need to be like literally hands in the clay because you can't be like on your phone writing an email when your hands are in the clay. So (laughs) Props to those artists who have been able to get galleries or assistants or directors to like lighten the load. And um, I think artists who haven't been able to find that support, there's creative ways to get that support. And it's like, you know, art trade. A lot of people are just like really uh, interested in supporting artists. So you can find ways that aren't exhaustive on your monetary um, capabilities to still gain the support. I've learned so much through just diving in. I have a Bachelor of Art in theater. (laughs) And it's funny because people are always really baffled by that. But as like I explain it, it makes perfect sense. There's so much theatrics involved in the art world. (laughs) Like there's so much smoke and mirrors. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about organizing chaos and like just like everybody has a task like from like pulling pulling the curtain up and down to like the lighting and sound cues. Like you can really like filter that all into like an art project or like an artist's career. Like it's, it's all about like existing calmly within the chaos. And one branch of the chaos is emails. And a lot of times they're positive. They're like, Hey, we want you to show at this triennial, or we want you to like come and be XYZ for us. And that's great, but it's overwhelming because a lot of times artists have imposter syndrome. Artists don't feel like maybe valued with the stipend that's provided. They can feel like, oh, you're actually benefiting from me being here more than I'm benefiting. So they just ghost and they don't respond. But like you said, like we've talked about a lot, I've been on both sides of the emails, like having to respond for my own practice, for Chinupas, for yours, for other people's, but then also having to like be ghosted on, emailing people and inviting them to participate, even on this podcast, you know, and also understanding that it's not personal. Um, And a follow-up email goes a long way, you know, and, but for the artists, I would advise to like have a automatic reply if you're really overwhelmed have an automatic reply that just says like, 
my shit is crazy and it might be crazy for (laughs) So I don't know if I'll be able to get back to you. And automatic replies are really annoying, but at least it sets the tone. You know, at least they know you're not ghosting on them. And they're appreciated because then I know sometimes they even have a date, like check back in after X, Y, Z, and then you can just hold off and you know. Yeah. So all those kind of practical tools I've learned from being on both sides of like the artist and the administrative. Um, Your integrity goes a long way. I'm, I learned that in the movie industry because I worked in the movies for several years um, in the art department after I graduated from um, college in theater. And your reputation precedes you. And it translates into the art world. Like, I don't talk shit about anybody, but there's people that I don't hit up to work with. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because <laughs> it's an energy suck. It's exhausted. It's constant one-way street. And I think in life energetically, what we need to be in community is reciprocation, you know? So when it starts to feel one way, it's exhaustive and it's like understanding those boundaries. So if you want to show up to your own career in the art world, you have to understand it's a community. It's a large community. There's good and bad in every community. There's good and bad in the art world, art worlds, and your reputation precedes you. So be in integrity, be in integrity with yourself and be in integrity with the people who you're playing with. And I always say that too, to you, it's like a game, you know, like recognize it's a game and that you're actually willingly participating because I I'm kind of over the people talking shit about the art world and then participating I'm like (laughs) change it from if you're going to be in it change it from the inside don't just sit inside and talk shit about it and like I don't know if that's good for your well-being you know (laughs) now I'm going off but all I'm saying is that go off (laughs) recognize our wake we need to recognize that we are as artists you're choosing to be a part of a weird, strange, beautiful, toxic community. And not every person in the art world is going to align and be a good fit for you, but find those ones who are and lovingly like let go of those who aren't. Such great advice. I'm, I'm also wondering on the, on the other side of that, I'm wondering if you have any advice for people with institutional positions of power for curators, gallerists, collectors, people who are a part of the ecosystem of the art, even Mm. gatekeepers, you know? I'm wondering if you have any advice for anyone within that community that's listening right now to this conversation. I have opinions. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that what I've learned over the course of my, like, creative advisement and, like, studio direction Uh, like behind the scenes work is that so often institutional folks who are working there think they're doing you a favor only. Mm. And it often comes from like people who are raised in cultures of privilege, you know, can forget that the artist is also greatly benefiting the institution, especially artists who come from like undervalued, historically undervalued communities. They're benefiting the institution probably more than the institution is benefiting the artist. 
And they need to like frame their invitations, their emails, and their monetary funding capabilities to reflect that. Because I, I've noticed that the higher up and the fancier the name of the museum is, the smaller the museum is. That's the T. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, X, Y, Z. Good dollars. <laughs> but then like the small, like Midwest museum is like, you know, like we fundraised, we wrote grants, we have this funding, we can offer you $10,000 and bring you out and you have a family. So we'll support your family. It's just like, it's, it's funny how backwards it is around like the support. And maybe they feel like, oh, you're getting exposure. And there's that whole like funny meme and narrative around like, can't buy groceries with exposure. (laughs) But I do believe exposure is part of it. Like you have to like weigh it out for you. It is a choose your own adventure. Like, okay, at this point in my career, if I say yes to this show at this prestigious institution, I'm actually saying yes, because I understand I'm only going to make $200. But the fact is it could catapult my work into the eyes of a gallery that I might want to work with that could suppose supposedly help me for a decade to come. It's a gamble. It's a fucking game. It's a crapshoot. It's being in the right place at the right time. It's having a PMA, positive mental attitude and owning that you're participating. You know, I do appreciate artists who continue to push up against and like call out and publicly shame and like get mad about like the way the systems and structures of museums are working because I think they are problematic from their birth. Like Chinupa is always like, the only way to decolonize a museum is to like destroy it, (laughs) to literally Mm -hmm. spit off of the face of the earth. But I'm a little bit more like of a pragmatic activist, I guess, where I'm like, (laughs) um, the way we shift it is by like just changing from the um from the top down who's in charge like less um token hires and more hires of um queer people indigenous people um artists of color in like ceo positions on boards you know who have the say and actually come from the places where the people are who are going to be showing in the museum you know so i believe that not participating is one way. Um, but that's not what I'm choosing. That's not what Chinupa is choosing. We're participating. We're participating and we're making change in the way that we can and how we mentally and physically have capacity to. And we're doing it in a bold way that feels authentic. And we're not shaming anybody for doing it a different way. Like all hands on deck. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. But like what I don't like is when people practice lateral violence on each other. And I see that in the art world, you know? And I think it's um, not healthy. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we can talk for a minute because your entire life, both as an artist and as a community organizer, journalist, broadcaster, disruptor, all of the different ways that you've devoted your life to art and art making and art community and connecting through creativity. I'm wondering how you think about the role of art or making art in the context of continued genocide, 
continued war, the interconnectedness of global struggles, the ways that in terms of art, I know I question it constantly all the time, because like you were saying before, it is a, it is a choice. It's both a completely like, like inextricable from who we are as people. And at the same time, every day, a choice to participate through this mode of being and relating. And so I'm just wondering for you, especially when I think, you know, maybe a a certain kind of art and a certain kind of making is just so, there's so much clarity and directness to continued uh, struggles, to continued histories of war and present day crises. And then there's also just art and art making that maybe isn't in direct relationship to activism in a way that's automatically able to be recognized. I guess I'm just wondering, what is your conviction around art in times of urgent uh, crises? I think that's a really interesting question that we should all be asking ourselves continually. It's another yes and. It's a like all art needs to exist at its uh, most urgent visibility always because in times of insurmountable strife and struggle and oppression and trauma and genocide and ongoing like desecration of the earth like I think we need to have the art that calls out the contemporary moment and boldly holds up the signals for like a deeper like accountability, need for change, description, uncovering of uncomfortable truths, all of those things needs to exist. Yes, always. That work always needs to be happening in moments of continued human atrocity. And also it shouldn't extinguish beauty. It shouldn't extinguish art that reframes disgusting human tendencies and shows us beauty and shows us possibility and shows us joy and shows us like irreverence and shows us moments of pause to remember our humanity. I think that again, especially in the art world and the way that we're communicating, we get pushed into only one possibility. And we're fucking made up of stardust. There's infinite possibilities. Like we need to have all of it existing simultaneously. And I I believe, I believe in all work needing to exist because there's so many human beings on this planet and there's so many like complex coding systems and like like ancestral trauma and ancestral resilience like pulsating through all of our bodies you know um, from time immemorial that we don't know how our art is going to change the world and maybe not even in our lifetime so if we stop making authentic art that represents our human experience, maybe it can't speak to the current genocide, (laughs) you know, because I would say current genocide, because genocides are part of humanity since its inception. We are fucking gnarly creatures. 
we are really harmful to each other and the planet and it's nothing new it we are a bad thing if we let ourselves be so having work that reacts to the current politics the current situation the current harm and heartbreak and genocide is very important but i think that we have to be mindful not to make the artists who are opening up cracks of tender space and beauty and light go quiet because we also need to see that, you know? So, um, yeah, I think it's both. It's all, it's everything. It's why are we continuing to limit ourselves on what we can experience simultaneously? I think that we need to remember that uh, we can we can shine brightly and hold space and have compassion. I mean, we can do it all. And art is a way for us to like do it all without words even. If we don't even have words for how much in pain we are collectively, art can help us like see a moment of abstraction on a canvas and like be moved to tears and contemplate our existence. And sometimes we need to see like bold statements like spray painted on a wall that are like for or against something to be moved to that way. And maybe we need to see both in the same day, you know, like it's okay. Like feel joy and sadness simultaneously. Like that's part of being human. That's what makes us so special. And I think art really shines light onto that kaleidoscopic, like opportunity. It makes me think about uh one of my one of my favorite artists and mentor friends, Byron Kim, who I remember just having a lot of conversations with him in the studio about this. And he's been in the game for a lot longer than I have. And he's an incredible artist, an abstract artist. Byron, sorry if you would have a different moniker for your work, but his work explores so many different things and he has come to this dynamic of like letting his work be his work and then he shows up at the protest and he makes the phone calls and like does all of the other things that there's also can be like a little bit of a pressure valve release on artists having to make our work always um, adjusting around direct response. And it's really, really important and needed as you're saying, if that's your practice. And also there's so many modalities that we don't have to also be complacent that our art is like activating and contributing in ways that we can even understand or see. And there's ways to plug in to our community and showing up for each other as well. So I've just like appreciated witnessing that from him and having an example of someone who is like an old school artist who's figured out a way to be in integrity with his art you know which I see as like visual poetics and also to really show up for every moment wild because I think as me I mean I'm gonna be 44 this year (laughs) yes young but um you know, getting into the space of reflection. And I find that way so much more appealing 
to me. And maybe it's because I grew up without, I'm from a generation that grew up without social media, without like performative, um, uh, performative action or like saying like, I am doing all the right things. You know, um, I grew up in a way that was, um, your actions speak louder than your words. And, um, I find myself as I get older and older, really noticing people who might not wear their activism on the, like at the forefront of their practice, but who are actually, because they're not spending all that time doing it in that way. I'm not saying that way is not important, but not everybody can do that. Like doesn't have the mental capability. The, it's not good for them to do that. Um, all that time they would be spending, like being the loudspeaker, being the voice, they can go into their communities and actually like affect change through um, direct action work. And so it's really important that we recognize that and don't take everything at face value just because a painting isn't reflecting the temperature of the times currently with the sanctioned hashtag and the the noted rally cry doesn't mean that the, that person is being silent or passive or not a feeling caring human being. It means that maybe they're doing the work. And, and I find myself in that heartbreaking conundrum. Like I, I don't even know how to participate in some of my own community at this point, because I'm, um, I'm a little bit maybe more soft in my activism these days, you know, where I'm like doing, like you said, more behind the scenes advocacy versus direct action and um, witnessing uh, our call out culture practice, lateral uh, violence and um, publicly shaming one another when I'm like, how is that supporting like healing anything or supporting fighting against genocide? I I'm, I'm confused a little bit right now. Um, and so I guess we can't um, mistake uh, silence for, or perceived silence. I'm always like silent where like on Instagram, because a lot <laughs> I know who like don't even fuck with Instagram are like in the streets right now, you know? So I'm just like, we all have to recognize we are seeing the world through our own filter and like what we don't see, maybe we're not in the in the right space to see these other things. It's very complicated. I'm still unpacking it all. It kind of gets me heated, but I'll just stop there. I love it. Well, I mean, just bringing it back full circle, the whole uh, mission of Broken Boxes is in the title and something that you say, like a sign off that you say that I love is breaking boxes to build worlds. And as this, decade as you're arriving at this decade of this project of like literally doing just that and also exploring what that actually means in practice breaking boxes to build worlds as you're closing this chapter that's or this decade there's a really really exciting project that you've been working in collaboration with at the albuquerque museum and I'm wondering, like, what what are the boxes that you're breaking right now? What are the worlds that you're building? What is on the horizon? What's changing or shifting or if you can even speak to that? 
Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about a new era. (laughs) (laughs) I have been, um, like I mentioned earlier briefly, I was invited by Josie Lopez, who is just an incredible, talk about like a behind the scenes, like Maverick, who is like, continued to uplift community, Josie Lopez, who's the um, head curator at the Albuquerque Museum, has followed my work and supported my work for many years. Like silently, she um, was one of the judges on the Fulcrum Fund, the Andy Warhol Foundation Fund that actually gave me a micro grant to do my first Broken Boxes exhibition um, at Form and Concept in Santa Fe. And she since went on to be the head curator at the Albuquerque Museum. And she continued to follow my work. And she invited me to do something at the museum to like kind of take over the main gallery, the big gallery at the museum and um, celebrate the work and like the um, plurality and the intersection that I bring with Broken Boxes. And so I, of course, was like, wow, this is an incredible opportunity and had imposter syndrome and why me and all of that stuff. But, you know, just realize that uh, something I always tell Chinuba is like, it's not always about us, <laughs> you know, it's not about <laughs> you, but I always tease because sometimes we don't want to do things because it makes us feel uncomfortable, but we have to think about the community that we can impact positively by showing up to these spaces and these invitations, even if it's uncomfortable or we don't feel like we're worthy. So I said yes, and we've been planning for the past year this really big celebration of broken boxes at the Albuquerque Museum and a really big, chunky art book um, to accompany it and uh, uh, six months of programming, inviting artists to um, join in, um, to bring their craft and their ideas and their vision and their conversation to the Southwest. So I really am super excited about this and scared about it because it's going to be the biggest, the biggest thing I've ever done through Broken Boxes, but I've been really supported by the museum. We've gotten funding support, like just an overwhelming positive response to the work in a way that like makes me like tear up and feel just like so seen. And the exhibition is going to focus on the past four years, specifically around this like surviving as an artist ethos. And um, I can't even bring all the artists in that I've interviewed over the past four years because I just have interviewed too many people. But I selected artists that I really felt were like um, pushing the edges of contemporary art in ways that are just really exciting to me personally. Um, people who I also resonate with and vibe with and like, um, I'm excited about of what they're doing. So yeah, so that's going to go down. <laughs> ooh, ooh, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. I'm, I'm so excited. Really such an incredible undertaking, you know, huge exhibition and publication. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. And maybe I can read off the participating artists. Um, Please the first time I'm really sharing it. So if, if you made it this far in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Three hours later, it's long form. It's long form. You were warned <laughs> in the, in the about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the, um, 
uh, exhibition and the publication is going to be called Broken Boxes, A Decade of Art, Action, and Dialogue. And it's co-curated by myself and Josie Lopez. Um, and the book is co-authored by us. And the exhibition is going to be September 7th through March 2nd, September tw 7th, 2024 through March 2nd, 2025. And um, the artists are going to be Saya Wolfalk, Raven Chacon, Sterling Harjo, Amaryllis Our Flowers, <laughs> Sade Mackinnon, Natalie Ball, Autumn Chacon, Castles, Laura Ortman, India Sky, Elisa Harkins, Guadalupe Maravilla, Swoon, Christine Howard Sandoval, Kate DeCicio, Tanya Aguiniga, Joseph M. Pierce, Mario Ibarra Jr., Chip Thomas, Jeremy Dennis, Marie Watt, um, Catherine Paul, Black Belt Eagle Scout, and Chinupa Hanska Luger. Wow. Boom. Yeah. Boom. All incredible people, incredible friends. And just, yeah, I wanted to celebrate the last four years um, up, uh, like, not uplifting, but just like putting a spotlight on artists who, I either like continue to have working relationships with like you and like Raven and Chinupa um, and then artists who I haven't ever really worked with and who are like new in my community, like um, Castles and um, Tanya Aguiniga and, you know, just people who I've been forming relationship with. So it's just a very intentional list of people based on yeah just relationality and a lot of the artists work together our friends there's just so much overlap um within the arts community that I just yeah I'm just really excited about this project and the art book it's my first time having a a book published I did a small book for my other broken boxes exhibition but it wasn't like um through a press so this will be you know have a dust jacket and, and you know <laughs> like um libraries and stuff and that's really beautiful and like the main theme of the publication is like artists own, on in artists own words you know so I transcribed uh excerpts of all the the conversations of the participating artists and filtered it down so it's just like bold images, bold visuals of their process of the artist working of their work. And then it's coupled with their own voice, speaking about their practice, speaking about collaboration, speaking about their triumphs and their struggles, speaking about their toolkits and their survival tactics as artists. So I just hope that it becomes like this really beautiful archive that you can like pick up and read cover to cover or just thumb through for some inspiration, you know? Oh, it's, that's so incredible. And I just want to say, I'm so, so infinitely grateful. I have so much gratitude for, for you and who you are in my life personally. And then also in the world, in the collective art world that we're building, you know, together and just how you operate how you choose to be in relationship to all of us. Um, and then also this incredible space and container that you've offered and held and kept for a decade. This is an incredible community resource that's going to exist as long as there's like radio airwave transmissions, you know? So 
I just want to say thank you so much for your work and your practice. I'm like not only moved and inspired by it, but I really am forever changed um, because of it. And uh, yeah, you are truly, truly, truly just one of my favorite people. And I know that no matter what you do and what you're creating and the projects that you're instigating, conducting and making, you're always going to be you, you know, forever changing and shifting. And I'm so excited to see what comes next. Yes. It's definitely this book and exhibition represents like the end of an era. Like I said, in the beginning of a new era, And I don't want to like say too much about it, but I definitely want to like acknowledge my energy shift. I've been touring um, globally the past year and working back more in like the music industry and I'm really enjoying it and um, kind of getting my feet wet again because, you know, I used to be a, a DJ and a performer in that way and it's called me back. And so I'm not sure how exactly that era is going to tie into Broken Boxes or if Broken Boxes is going to like have had its moment. Uh, But I just want to, yeah, just make sure that this year I'm really celebrating the work and the community that I've formed and the people that I've been able to be in relationship with. Because like I said before, I know that Broken Boxes would be zero zilch nothing without all the art that I know that came on and talked to me and like, was like, of course I'll spend two hours talking with you. (laughs) Like, (laughs) and before I even had money to pay anybody, like a modest honorarium, people would just show up and do it for free. So it's just like that level of mutual respect and acknowledgement is like priceless. You know, there's no, it it is very anti-capitalist the way that this Um, framework and structure has been able to exist and I love it and I honor it but I think that it it may have served its purpose for me and in this inception I'm not saying it's going away but I'm not saying it's going to stay the same (laughs) and um, we'll see just stay tuned I do I can promise you a few more interviews this year I'm going to New York in March and I'm going to re-record my conversation with Sia Wolfalk because it was, we were walking around um, Brooklyn Navy Yard when I did the conversation (laughs) and I let you listen to it, Amaryllis, but it was just not audible for um, producing on the podcast. So we're going to re-record that conversation. Um, I think Chinupa is going to get into conversation with Lakota rapper and singer um, Mato Wayuhi on here and maybe a couple of others, but I think 2024 is really going to be focused on the exhibition and the book and this conversation that you and I are having right now to celebrate the actual anniversary in February is kind of like the big gift of this year, probably for the broadcast itself. I feel like I'm I'm ready to energetically like move into some like big fun things and let broken boxes live on, you know, in a way that um, I might not be stewarding. Well, I'm celebrating that. I'm celebrating you. I'm celebrating this work and gratitude and so much respect. And 
you know, it's a lifelong project, no matter what this end of an era, beginning of a new one is a lifelong project of breaking boxes and building worlds. And I'm going to carry that with me. I know that you carry that into everything you do. And thank you so much for having this conversation, Ginger. And it, it was really, really rad, actually. Like, even though we talk all the time, I just love this conversation. I'm really excited to and grateful to be in community with you. Thank you, Amaryllis. I love you. And more to come. Hey. <laughs> okay. Love you, sis. Thank love you, you sis. Take me somewhere slow